one of the reasons at Christ Church we're committed to, by and large, walking through Scripture chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is because um, in so many ways, as I just prayed, we see that these characters in the Bible, they're not these spiritual superstars. They're not spiritual heroes. In a lot of ways, they're just like us. And what we see each week as we look at the man of, or the life of this man, Abraham, is that in so many ways, his story is our story. His struggles are our struggles. His needs are our needs. And it's so remarkable how God, through the Holy Spirit, has composed this story, the story of the Bible, the story of his dealings with humanity to um, reach people all over the world today, no matter their background, no matter what's going on in their life, and remind them that God, in his unchanging grace, is for us and with us and makes promises to us and keeps promises to us, just like he did for Abraham so many thousands of years ago. We've seen as we've made our way through this series so far that the twin themes of Abraham's life are that God makes gracious promises to this man, and then God calls Abraham to trust to have faith in God and in God's promises. And we've already seen as we started making our way through his story, the ups and downs of Abraham's life that inevitably characterize all who are followers of Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then you need to know that being a Christian doesn't mean all your problems go away and evaporate. In fact, oftentimes it means that you get more problems. Welcome to Christianity, isn't that appealing? It means that uh, sometimes life gets harder But in the midst of the hardships of life, we believe that because Jesus has gone before us, God is with us and he is working for our good in the midst of these things. We see that in Abraham's story already. In chapter 15, a couple of weeks ago, we saw God make this amazing promise to Abraham to be his God and to bless him and his descendants. And then he promised that he would keep this covenant promise to Abraham by walking through these uh, cut up animals taking this self-maledictory oath on himself and saying, Abraham, I will keep my promise and then I will bear the punishment for you failing to keep your promise. That was a highlight of Abraham's story. And then in last week, in Genesis 16, we saw one of the lowlights of Abraham's story. We saw that Abraham and Sarah, his wife, tried to engineer the fulfillment of God's promises in their own timing, and that didn't go well for him. Today in Genesis 17, we come to really another pinnacle chapter in all of the Old Testament, to be honest with you. And we don't have time to talk about all the details of this text. I just want to get you the main idea and help you understand it by God's grace. But what you need to see, first of all, is that it's been, listen, it's been 13 years from the end of chapter 16 to the beginning of chapter 17. 13 years! We read that Abraham is 99 years old in 17.1. 13 years have elapsed since the end of the previous story. 13 more years of waiting, of anxiety, of questioning God, of attempting to persevere. 13 more years of hoping that God will do what he's promised, that he will provide Abraham and Sarah with a child of their own despite their old age, despite their being well past childbearing years. And yet in 17.1, we see that God appears again to Abraham. And what we see here is more covenant-type language than anywhere else thus far in the whole Bible, 16 chapters of the Bible so far. And uh, in fact, this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible for our understanding of God's covenant with Abraham, the relationship that God instituted and established with Abraham. It's what theologians call the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace. 
And uh, what we're going to learn here today is that God is the one who begins and designs the relationship, but Abraham has a responsibility in the relationship as well. And so as we think about these verses together this morning and look at Abraham's life, I want us to also, by God's grace, reflect on our own lives and to see, to see that God has also initiated relationships with each one of us personally and yet calls us to obedience in the midst of that relationship. Okay, here's the main idea. God graciously establishes a covenant relationship with his people and calls us to respond by trust and obedience, okay? So let's break that down into two points today, just two points. It's rare. Usually we're Trinitarians here, and we have three points today, just two points, okay? Point one, God initiates and establishes the covenant relationship. Thank you for laughing at that terrible theology pastor joke. God initiates and establishes the covenant relationship, point one. Point two... Man trusts and obeys in the covenant relationship. Okay, that's a way to break down these 14 verses. So let's start with point one. God initiates and establishes the covenant relationship. We see that in verses one through eight. Basically, these verses are a recapitulation and an elaboration of the promises that God has already made to Abraham and to Abraham's children. God has spoken to Abraham in chapter 12 and given him promises. Verses 1 through 3. He spoke to him again in chapter 15 and gave him promises. And what we see here is more of that. God promises, verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, to multiply Abraham, to give him many descendants, right? Verse 6, he promises, this is an elaboration, that kings will come from you. Your family line will be a royal family line, God says. Verse 7, God promises that he will always be Abraham's God. And the God of Abraham's children. This is an everlasting covenant we read there. Verse 8. God promises that his descendants, Abraham's descendants, will inherit all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession that God has given them. And he will be their God. So God comes again after 13 years of waiting and speaks to this man. This broken man, this struggling man, this sinful man. And says, I haven't forgotten you, Abraham. My promises are still for you. I'm going to make you a great nation. Kings will come from your line. You will inherit this land. And this covenant is going to be forever. It's everlasting. Now, permit me for just a moment to digress from the main point. Just a brief digression to say this for you. Um, Abraham never received all that was promised to him in his life from God. Did you know that? Abraham saw initial fulfillment of some of the promises, like Isaac, his son, being born, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, like being buried in the land of Canaan, but he didn't see final fulfillment of any of these promises. What does that mean? Here's what it means. One thing God is speaking to us through that idea is this. The Christian is called to not bank everything on this life but rather to hope in what is yet to come. Commenting on Abraham's life much later in the Bible in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 writes this. I've got it on the screen. If you would throw that up, read along with me. Here's what he says. These all died in faith. And talking about Abraham, look at this. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham had to look into his future life and God's future grace to see by faith that God would fulfill the promises he made to him. He never saw them in his earthly life. What does that mean for us now? Maybe let me ask it like this. What does it look like for you to see God's promises and greet them from afar, to use the language of Hebrews there? What does it look like for you to live with hope in what is yet to come from God? There's a lot of answers to that. Here's what it looks like, at least for one. It looks like fighting against sin and rebellion now by hoping in what God has promised for our futures. Fighting against sin now by hoping in what God has promised for our futures. Let me try and give a practical example of what that looks like for you and for me. Um, Just as one of many examples. How can we use hope in what God will do in our future, in the heavenly life we have yet to come? How can we use that hope as a weapon to fight against, say, for example, anxiety? Let's just take anxiety as one of many examples, okay? Um, Well, we battle the unbelief of anxiety by trusting in God's promises for us. So when you're trying to live as a Christian and trying to follow Jesus, the battle that you're waging every day is a battle of trust. It's a battle of faith. You're either, especially when circumstances are bad, right? You're either going to believe that God is going to keep the promises he's made, even if you don't see them in this life. Or you're going to believe that your circumstances are dominant and sovereign over your life. And every day when you're facing anxiety, when you're worried, when you're fearful of your future, what's happening is you are being asked to believe not what your circumstances dictate, but what God has promised. You're asking to, you're being asked by God to hope in his future grace to you in the gospel, just like Abraham was asked to do. So a couple of very practical examples. When you're anxious about some risky new venture that you're beginning, maybe or a a meeting that you have this week, you are called by God's grace to believe in the promise of, say, Isaiah 41, where God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. When you're anxious about being too weak or powerless to do what you need to do in life, the fight of faith, is to believe the promise of 2 Corinthians 12, where God says through Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. When you're anxious about, say, the welfare of those that you love, of your family, you're called to fight against that anxiety, fight against that unbelief by believing Jesus' promise in Matthew 7, that he says that God will give good things to all those who ask him of it. When you're anxious about maybe being sick, believe the promise, fight against anxiety by believing the promise of Psalm 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. When you're anxious about dying, believe the promise of Romans 14.8. Whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Listen, the Christian life, the Christian life is one of trusting that God will do what he has promised for us, even if we don't receive it all in this life. Can you see that? 
the fight of following Jesus is the fight of trusting God versus letting your doubts and your anxieties creep in and take over. So if you're going to fight well, if you're going to hope and to trust, you have to know the promises you're to believe, which is one very good reason to regularly read your Bibles, study your Bibles, memorize scripture, so that you can recall these promises and use them as weapons, as a sword to kill the anxiety and the fear and the doubt and the worry that tends to come into our lives and attempt to sabotage us spiritually. Does that make sense? John Piper, uh, in his book, Future Grace, gives a great illustration of this idea. Here's how Piper puts it out. He says that we are to think of our life uh, in this illustration as, as like we're racing in a car against the devil. And um, because the devil wants to defeat us, the devil wants to be victorious, he's going to say, fling mud on our windshields. He's going to attempt to distract us and muddy our vision. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not in the race anymore, right? When you can't see clearly, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. And it also doesn't mean that you've sort of gone off the track, that you once were a Christian and you're not a Christian anymore. That's not what it means. It just means the devil is trying to thwart you. And he's doing that by seeking to muddy your faith, your sight of God's future promises to you. And so Piper tells us that what we are supposed to do in those scenarios is simply to get a clean windshield, to clear the windshield. And anxiety is an example of the mud that the devil uses to hinder our running the race well. And so we fight it by using our windshield wipers, by meditating on God's word, by spending time in prayer, by remembering the gracious promises that he has made to us. And those are the very practical ways that we, as it were, that we clean the mud off of our windshields so that we can see clearly again by faith what God has promised to his people. That's what Abraham had to do, guys. He never got everything in this life. By the way, Jesus never got everything in this life that was promised to him. Jesus never sinned and still got killed. Jesus had to await his own resurrection before he saw the fulfillment of all of God's promises to him. So if that happened to Jesus, if that happened to Abraham, then certainly it's going to happen to us as well. So often in this life, we are being asked to wait and to hope. So fight that fight. Clear the mud off of your windshields. Meditate on God's promises because he is still for you. So, digression ended, (laughs) okay? Now, back to the main idea of these first eight verses, okay? God is the one who initiates and establishes the covenant relationship. That's the big point. Listen, Abraham did not conjure up the idea to suddenly leave his home, Ur, What a great name, by the way, Ur, you are, Ur of the Chaldeans, and just go to Canaan. That was all God. We've seen that already. That was 100% from God's gracious pleasure. Abraham didn't just suddenly decide to give God some suggestions about what promises he would like God to make to him. That was 100% God. God fully initiated and started off the relationship that he has with Abraham. Listen, the institution of this covenant, of this relationship between God and Abraham and Abraham's family, the institution of it, the establishment of it is purely of God's powerful, unmerited, gracious, and merciful purposes. And the promises are such that only God can fulfill them, you see. It's going to take a miracle for Sarah to have a baby. 
It's going to require supernatural intervention for these promises to become reality. And listen, the very same thing is true in each of our relationships with God or potential relationships with God. Having a right relationship with God, having communion and fellowship with your loving creator and king is only the product of his gracious initiating work in our lives. Do you see that? That's one of the main themes of all of the scriptures. You cannot go out and find God on your own and set the terms of your relationship with him. Any relationship with God that any of us has, any peace with God that any of us has, any sense of joy in God that any of us may experience, any forgiveness from God that any of us have, any intimacy with God that any of us have comes about only as the result of God's affectionate pursuit of us out of his love. Do not miss this. God does not love you because you were religiously committed enough to find him. God loves you because he was graciously committed enough to find you. If you don't understand that, you have not yet understood Christianity. If the life of Abraham teaches us anything, it is this. God is the one who initiates and establishes this covenant relationship with his people. That's why we call it the covenant of grace. It's completely unmerited on our end. It's undeserved. We do absolutely zero. We don't even do .0001% to set the terms of a relationship, to get into this uh, interaction with God. We do nothing. God, from beginning to end, initiates it. God drives it. God starts the engine. God is the one who sovereignly decides to save us out of peril and out of weakness and out of death. You will never find your way to God on your own, but you can trust that he will find his way to you through Jesus. So we see that God initiates and establishes the relationship. But secondly, we see in Abraham's life that man trusts and obeys in the covenant relationship. Or to put that another way, this chapter very clearly teaches that Abraham has a role in the relationship that he has with God. Abraham has a role in the relationship. You could even say that Abraham has responsibilities. He has obligations. And the same is true for us, by the way. Let me show you what I mean. I mean, in the first seven or eight verses there we see that Abraham is clearly the recipient of God's initiating grace. If you look closely at the passage, seven times in verses 1 through 8, God says, I will to Abraham. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. God is initiating the relationship. He's making promises to Abraham. But especially in verses 9 through 14, we see God begin to tell Abraham, you must, you must keep my covenant. You must circumcise yourself and your offspring. You must do this. You must do this. In verse 1, we see God say to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Now, that word blameless in the Old Testament, the language of Hebrew, does not mean perfect or sinless. Rather, it means, like when we studied James some months back, it means a life of completion or integrity or of wholeheartedness. Abraham is to walk with integrity and with full completion with God. That's what God is calling Abraham to do. He tells him even to keep his covenant. 
Here's the idea, okay? The relationship is formed by God through grace alone. But once the relationship is established, there is some element of mutuality in the relationship. The relationship is it's instituted by God, but it's maintained in part by Abraham's obedience. That's evident in this passage. And, and furthermore, it's important to see that Abraham's role in maintaining the relationship by his obedience is a response to God's grace in instituting the relationship. Abraham obeys what God tells him to do because he's seen what God has done for him, you see. And, and the greater the grace bestowed, the greater the promises made by God, the higher the obligation and responsibility on the part of man to obey. The great theologian John Murray puts it this way, the necessity of keeping the covenant is but the expression of the magnitude of the grace bestowed. Okay, listen. So, when God says to Abraham, you must do this, he is not saying, he is not saying, my will is dependent upon your action. God is not saying, you must do this, and if you don't, I will not do what I have promised. God's not like that. God is sovereign, and God is going to do what he's going to do. And further, in chapter 15, we've already seen God assure Abraham that he will bear Abraham's punishment for the failures he has to keep the covenant. But it's no less true and no less important to see that we must do something. You must do something in your relationship with God, and so must I. And that something is to believe and to obey. We don't believe and obey so that God will love us. We believe and obey because we see how much God already loves us. Let me try and illustrate that for you like this. And I might have told this illustration before. Forgive me if I have. Um, my, uh, when I was growing up and coming into my teenage years, my high school years, um, and I would do something foolish or stupid, which I assure you happened very rarely. But when that happens, that was supposed to be funny. Come on, no one. Uh, when that happened, um, my dad would often, you know, sit me down and talk to me. And, and he would say to me, sometimes, Luke, it's time for you to act your age. Act your age. You are becoming an adult. You're a man. You have responsibilities. Now, act like it. Okay? And, and in a sense, that's what God is calling each of us to do if we're Christians. He's saying, you have been rescued out of sin and out of hell and out of death. I have made you one of my children. You're a part of my family. You're the recipient of my grace. You believe all that's true. I've done this sovereignly and freely by my mercy. So act like that. Let your lifestyle and your obedience be dictated by what your identity already is as a member of my family. He doesn't say, Abraham, you're not getting into my family until you obey. He says, Abraham, you're a part of my family. Act like it. Does that make sense? You see the difference there. That's very, very important. God is saying, you are mine. I have saved you for myself. Now act like it and obey me. Another way to think about it. God wants from us his children. He wants from us heartfelt obedience, heartfelt obedience that flows out of our appreciation for and understanding of his love for us. 
You know, parents, I think, can understand this. In our best moments, that is. In our best moments, why do we want our children to obey our rules? In our worst moments, it's just so they will stop bothering us. But in our best moments, we want our children to obey our rules, not simply so that they won't be a nuisance. We want them to obey our rules because we want them to see that the reason we give rules is because we love them and want what is best for them. So when you say to your child, no, you cannot jump off the roof, or when you say to your teenage daughter, no, you cannot stay out with that boy until 3 a.m. at his lake house, uh, you want them to obey you because they trust that you are out for their good. You see that? And it's the same with God. God wants Abraham to obey, and God wants us to obey because God already loves us. And he wants us to see that and then as an expression of that faith to follow him. He doesn't want us to obey so that God will love us. He wants us to obey because he already loves us. Abraham has to see that sin is, or disobedience is a betrayal first and foremost of God and of God's grace to him. It's not just a breaking of rules. It's to go back on the relationship that God himself has established. And so this story tells us very clearly that God begins the relationship. God initiates and establishes the relationship. God plucks Abraham out of darkness and brings him into his kingdom. And he does the same for us. And then God says, you have a responsibility to obey me. For Abraham, he says, circumcise yourself, follow my law, be blameless. And for us, he says, obey me, put all others behind your relationship with me. I am the Lord your God. I have brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And so as we wrap up, there's two questions that you need to ask yourself. Two questions. The first question is this. Are you obeying God? (laughs) Pretty clear application here, I think. If you're wondering about what your relationship with God is truly like, one way... Not the only way, but one way to discern the answer is to examine your life honestly and ask, am I obeying? Am I pursuing a life of blamelessness? Jesus says that people will know who his children are by their fruit. That is, by their obedience. That means that obedience is the inevitable and eventual result of a life of trust in God, of a true connection to Jesus Christ. So, do you obey him? Is there any fruit in your life? Is Jesus your Lord, or is some idol your Lord? If not, if there's no obedience in your life, then the Holy Spirit of God is at this very moment calling you to turn from your rebellion and disobedience and trust in God for forgiveness, and then strive through the Holy Spirit's help to follow after him. So hear his call and believe the gospel and repent. First question, are you obeying God? And then secondly, why are you obeying God? Why are you obeying God? So if you can say, yes, I don't obey God perfectly and I still sin, but I'm trying to obey and follow Jesus. If you can say that, which I hope you can, then it's important to then ask yourself why, right? And this is where we often get into trouble. Listen, you see, it's very easy to begin to think that our obedience is what establishes our relationship with God. But that's not what happened with Abraham. And that's not what happened with us 
when we were saved. God's grace establishes the relationship before we were ever obedient. You see, our obedience is always responsive. It's not initiatory. It's responsive. So why are you obeying? If you're trying to follow Jesus, why? Are you striving to obey so that you will be acceptable to God? A lot of people in San Antonio are doing that. If that's what you're doing, I want you to hear me very clearly. That is opposed to the true gospel. And ironically, that sort of lifestyle will stifle real obedience. You see, the gospel is opposed to our earning. It's opposed to our effort, to our attempts to earn God's favor by being nice, good little Christians. But the gospel is not opposed to our effort to fight sin and to obey. We obey not so that if we're good enough, God will smile down on us. We obey because we're confident in the fact that in Jesus, God is right now smiling down on us. And if you can really believe that and understand that, then more and more and more, God becomes your chief desire. Pleasing him becomes your chief aim. You more and more want to be conformed into his image. But it's important to continually ask yourself, why am I trying to obey God's law and do what's right and shun what is evil? Am I doing it because I think it's going to make God happy with me? Or am I doing it because I know that he is already happy with me? And the way you answer that question determines to a large degree the way you view God, the way you view others, and the way you view yourself. Now, we can say much more about that, and we will see more about that in the coming weeks in Abraham's life. But to sum it up, the main idea, again, is this. God initiates, establishes, seals, and confirms the covenant with Abraham. And he does the same thing for us. We should rejoice in his great and majestic grace. And then he calls those who are already his people to respond to his grace through trust and obedience. The great old hymn, Trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Are you trusting? Are you obeying? It's what the Spirit calls us to. May it be so. Let's pray.